Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I'm Stephen English and I'm joined today by David Emmett and Neil Morrison. And uh, we're talking tonight from just outside the circuit of the Americas in Texas. And we've seen another thrilling start to a MotoGP season, another great race here in Coda. And uh, David, just to start things rolling, what did you think of your first impressions again from the opening three races of the year? It was, I mean, this the big billing of this race was it was going to be um, Marquez versus Vinales. Um, all through practice, it was clear that those two were the best, the fastest the two of them had were, well, I don't know, generally sort of six, seven, eight tenths of a second on everyone else. It didn't really work out that way. It, Vinales let it go, you know, Vinales uh, was was catching Marquez. Marquez, uh, well, the Hondas got away at the start and um, uh, Vinales, uh, Vinales was chasing, but he never really caught them. And Neil, that really was the story of what we came here expecting was to see that Marquez-Vinales fight finally really the two of them wheel to wheel, but a bit like Argentina, Craig goes away slightly robbed of that uh, that race. Yeah, we're yet to see that big showdown that we sort of have been anticipating for the past two races, as you say, in Argentina, that was the that was the top billing and Mark crashed out in the fourth lap of the race. And then uh, this evening, well, sorry, this morning, Maverick crashed out in lap two. Um, and, you know, we I think we were definitely robbed of something quite special. Um, we are also robbed of just seeing a, a tight race until the end at the Circuit of Americas, which we've never really seen as well for the lead in anyway. Um, and from speaking to Maverick after the race, it was clear that, well, he seemed pretty confident that he could have taken the fight all the way to, right to the end um, and had spent pretty much most of uh, most of free practice and qualifying making sure that he was going to be there right at the end. How many times did he say on uh, Thursday, David, that the, the last 10 laps were going to be crucial? Something around, yeah, four, maybe five times. So he, he was kind of working towards that in mind and it was uh, it was a very strange fall that ended uh, that ended his hopes. Yeah, those last laps are going to be crucial and because we're on the Sunday night, it's uh, deadline time as well. So we're going to try and do a, a quick show tonight just to uh, bring everyone up to speed on uh, what happened here in Coda. And as we said, the key thing at the start of the weekend was going to be that Marquez and Vinales battle. And David, obviously with that crash for Vinales, just uh, what did you see from that? What did Vinales say after the race? After the race, he basically said what you hear so often from racers didn't do anything different. A strange feeling. I don't understand it. I don't know why I crashed uh, from the... From from watching the video it didn't look like he was particularly offline maybe he was a little bit offline he said he had a strange feeling with the uh with the front tire uh didn't have the same feeling with the front tire that he had for the rest of the weekend but then you know tires were a big story all, all weekend really uh, crashes were a big weekend i think we had 17 crashes on uh, on saturday uh, because friday started off sunny saturday was really really cold very very windy uh, people didn't have the right tires fitted they had the mediums fitted they didn't have the softs fitted the track has got very very bumpy so um it was to be frank that, that a rider should crash out is not such a big surprise on on Sunday, um, it was more a surprise that there weren't so many falling off, really. But um, you also have to wonder a little bit: was Vinales starting to push a little bit? Um, was the pressure getting to him, and is that what made him make a mistake, do something slightly, or take a slightly different line, or whatever? But um, he didn't think it was his fault. He was very careful not to blame Michelin. 
whilst at the same time were being so careful not to blame Michelin that it was obvious he was blaming Michelin, really. A lot of time when tyres are left on tyre warmers, they be they behave a little bit differently or whatever so it, it, it could be anything it's hard, it's hard to say exactly what caused his crash yeah you've touched on a, a lot of things there david and we'll get to quite a few of them over the course of the show but those track conditions definitely over the course of this weekend there was a big wind here in coda there was low temperatures just uh, difficult conditions for the michelins but uh, neil just looking from the riders perspective as well and we saw on Thursday in the press conference, Maverick was making it perfectly clear that this was a race that he had earmarked on the calendar as, I need to win this, I want to put pressure on Marquez. And I remember you turned to me at one stage and he said, he doesn't look like a man that's got anything on his mind other than winning. And after a poor start in the race, maybe he was just pushing a little bit too hard, putting a bit too much pressure on himself. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, we've had three races this season and pretty much three races in which Maverick didn't get the best hole shot and was quite cautious in the, the opening laps. Um, you know, the thing about Qatar and Argentina was that he was able to stay calm and focused and, you know, not really lose his head. Um, as David said, we're not really sure whether that was the case today or whether there was genuinely something uh, awry with uh, with the rubber that he had fitted. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that, um, that, you know, Maverick's still, what, 22, so he's, he's still got a lot to learn. But you would say that if there's one aspect of his kind of, of his time at Yamaha that he certainly needs to work on is that kind of getaway and, you know, explosive pace from the first, maybe, you know, first lap, really. Um, he hasn't shown himself as adept at being explosive from the off as, you know, his predecessor, Lorenzo, you know, for example. So, yeah, so I think that's the, that's definitely something to work on. Um, and, and you're right, it was clear that he was coming to Coda absolutely with the intention of, of laying down a marker and saying to Marquez, you know, you've had your own way here all through the, the time that MotoGP's visited um, Texas since 2013. Um, and he was talking like a man even from I think the end of Argentina, he was talking like a man that had earmarked this as a, as quite a you know a, a big, big milestone almost, um, in which he was going to say this is it, I've arrived, I'm the real deal, and uh, yeah, it's all well and good, sound and confident if you go and do the job, but uh, if it ended up as it did, um, you kind of start to think well. Could he not just have settled second, coming away from Coda from with a second place would have been a fantastic result considering the start of the season he's had. And um, yeah, once again, it's all to play for. And Neil, you mentioned there about the starts for Maverick. We saw in Qatar and in Argentina that he dropped back off the start, but he was patient and he was able to work his way through. Obviously, those two tracks suited him a bit better here. He knew that Marquez, if he's given a chance here, if he's given an inch, he takes a mile. So how much does that play on his mind as well? Yeah, I guess that probably did play in his, on his mind to an extent. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't as if Marquez was setting a ferocious pace at the front whenever he crashed. Pedroza was leading, Marquez was tucked in behind. Um, I think Maverick probably would have known at that point that Mark had chosen the harder front and maybe would have had to feel his way into the race, which he did. Marquez, I think, was complaining of some chatter in the opening laps and he said it took him a while to really get up to speed and feel totally comfortable. So it wasn't like Argentina, for example, where Marquez was, you know, a second and a half clear of the rest after the first lap, um, which which does make it strange. Um, you know, and as Maverick pointed out after the race, you know, last time he crashed, was in Argentina, crashed out of a race was in Argentina, 2016, 18, 19 races ago. Um, this isn't something that he does often. Um, you know, it's not as if we, we kind of 
look at him and say there's this uh, all these examples of him cracking under the pressure in the past it was a it was a quite a strange isolated incident um, but uh, but yeah it's going to be something that um, that he has to look at and maybe work on for the future and David that uh, that pressure cooker environment though of being expected to be a race winner expected to be a title contender once you get into that for the first time though it is a big challenge for a rider uh, yeah but I mean Maverick's done it before he's done it in Moto3 and it's not the same obviously in Moto3 in Moto2 he was also expected to win of course he had a couple of well years off shall we say in Moto uh, at Suzuki where he wasn't expected to win but it was clear from everything that he did there that he really did want to win. Perhaps he surprised himself a little bit by winning the first two, uh, winning the first two races. I mean, obviously that's what they're all there for. They're all there to to win races and try to lead championships. Um, but to actually find yourself so far ahead, yeah, maybe he got a little bit confident. Because the other thing is, he wasn't he wasn't crashing. Um, I think this was his second or third crash. Yeah, I mean, his third crash since he, since he got on the Yamaha. He's just been so incredibly confident um, on the bike, and you have to wonder maybe if he was a little bit a little bit too confident, a little bit overconfident. At some point, these sort of uh, these these things can catch up with you, and you need a little bit of a reality check. And this was a very very painful and uh, uh, and hard one. Yeah, and you you mentioned riders want to win races, win championships. Number forty six leading the championship now. He's come through three podiums in the first two in the first three races, and he's managed just to sneak his way back to the top of the standings. My uh, Twitter feed is uh, full of uh, uh, Valentino Rossi fans saying that um, uh, asking me if I think that. Uh, uh, if Maverick and um, and Mark spend each uh, spend all their time sort of beating each other up, can uh, can Valentino Rossi benefit from that? And it's quite clear that he can. He's been incredibly consistent. Uh, this was also the first weekend that he was actually comfortable right from the start of the right from the start of the weekend. Previously at Qatar and in um, uh, in Argentina. The uh, practices were pretty terrible. He was uh, he was not not particularly happy about it. In Argentina, they finally found a decent setup, which gave him a bit more confidence in the front end. They've changed the the, the balance of the bike. He feels a lot more a lot happier on the uh, on the bike, and he was he was competitive all through practice as well as being uh, competitive in the race. And he has just always been in the right place uh, uh, in the right place in the right time, and is uh, and is ended up leading the championship. Neil, we saw a bit of needle between the two Yamaha riders as well during qualifying. We saw, you know, Rossi looking like it might have been a, a bit of a bulk on Marquez, on uh, Vinales. Rossi said there was nothing to it. Vinales afterwards said there was nothing to it. But uh, at the time, we saw how much there was to it. Yeah, it had shades of uh, Mizano 2015 where Lorenzo was on a flyer at the end of qualifying and Rossi, you know, suddenly found himself on the racing line as Lorenzo was a quick approaching. Um, you know, it was something similar to that. Um, yeah, it was it was definitely interesting watching the body language in the in the press conference afterwards. Both riders were, were trying to play it down. I think it's it's very easy very early, you know, for there to be a flashpoint between the two guys. You know, they've got to share a garage for another fifteen races. So for there to be a bit of a flare up now I think would be would be premature on, on either rider's part. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a little reminder that you know Rossi is a, a wily old fox, and and at that point in in qualifying, um, you know Maverick had just picked up a real head of steam, and and you know was looking quite unstoppable really. Um, and we, we've kind of seen Rossi, you know, in the past that when he's trying to you know stop a rider's momentum, he will 
sometimes you know reach for anything that's uh, that's nearby to kind of throw and try and halt that. Um, so yeah, so that was that was interesting, um, and it's it's just fascinating because I'm sure Marquez is looking at this in the same way. He's thinking, well, I just have to sit back and you know keep my powder dry, and surely. Uh, you know, surely Rossi and Maverick will have a flashpoint at some point, and I'm sure Valentino was thinking the same thing as well. And then I'm sure Vinales is thinking the same thing too. I'm sure at some point Rossi and Marquez are going to find themselves on track, and yeah, who knows what's going to happen there. So it's it's in terms of the championship, it's really, I think it's fantastically poised. We've got a really great season ahead, and uh, you know, I, I've, it's it's quite difficult to take a pick from the three of them. Yeah, three prize fighters in the ring at once, and uh, it's pretty special, pretty unique in a lot of sports. But luckily in MotoGP, we've had it a few times. And David, one of the things that we all talk about with Rossi is just that uh, ability to keep going back to the well, to find the motivation to uh, to keep training, to keep working hard and to keep winning races and getting up on the podium and challenging for the championships. I was talking to Wayne Rainey about it, and he was saying that when he was coming to the end of his career, he said that he had a, a lot of a lot of times where during the week he didn't really have the same motivation, but once he got to Sunday, it really came back. Like you you mentioned when you were talking there just about how this was one of the first weekends that we've seen Rossi strong the whole way through. But for you, when you look at uh, the next few races coming up, do you think is that uh, ability to be strong from the outset going to continue to be the case for Rossi? Well, I mean, after the race today, he was very, very uh, positive because uh, the, all the tracks coming up are, are the stronger, his strongest tracks on the uh, uh, on the calendar. Uh, Jerez, not so much, but he's still, uh, he's still, you know, won there a couple of times. He's been, uh, he's been very good. Uh, Le Mans, I think that's one of his favourite tracks, but after that, we've got uh, Magello, we've got Barcelona, we've got Aston, we've got Saxon Ring, they, uh, we've got Brno. These are all the tracks that he that he loves, that he's really, really fast at, that he's really, really competitive at. Uh, and uh, nothing motivates like success. Um, and he definitely, um, uh, uh, and, you know, he, he surrounded himself by all these young riders with the, with, with the VR46 Academy and uh, having the threat of a 16-year-old kicking your ass on the, on your own dirt track uh, uh, circuit will certainly motivate you to get out of bed in the morning. Um, it's funny you mentioned Needle also because the uh, we saw their clash between uh, Zarco, uh, Johan Zarco and, and Valentino Rossi. And Valentino Rossi was extremely... I mean, it was a, it looked like a racing incident. The two of them came, to, uh, the two of them came together. Rossi missed the, the corner one. He came out late on, on corner one. Uh, then that puts you off offline for the rest of the corners and Zarco saw a hole and tried to dive up there. The two of them nearly came together and uh, Rossi was extremely critical of Zarco afterwards. But generally, uh, it's only critical of riders which he is very, very worried about. So the fact that he was so critical of Joan Zarco is, um, is a sign on the wall, I think. I think he's uh, a little bit worried about just how fast Joan Zarco is. Yeah, and that's definitely one of the, the key topics from the race. And as you said, David, like they really were set on that collision course from turn one. Rossi runs in too deep, misses his apex. Zarko's able to hold the tight line through one. That leaves him on the right line for turn two. And Rossi's out of, out of whack all the way from one, two, three, tries to turn in, and then he's just got nowhere to go. But Neil, what did you think of the incident? Yeah, I thought... Uh, um, I didn't really... Yeah, I thought... Zarko was entitled to put his bike where he put it. I thought Rossi was entitled to pick up. I mean, he didn't really have any option, as he said afterwards. You know, it was either crash or pick up, and he picked up. 
thought he was a little bit cheeky in, you know, speeding across the, the runoff area and not, you know, relenting his pace. Like it was quite clear when he rejoined the track that he had definitely gained something, you know, maybe he could have rolled the throttle a little bit just to, you know, ensure that he was just ahead of Zarko. But I think when he rejoined the track, he was, you know, a couple of tents in hand. So, yeah, I think, you know, that that, that is possibly, well, that is the reason why uh, um, the uh, the penalty came by came about sorry um you obviously spoke to mike webb after the race steve what was he saying well mike webb, race director just uh, as you were saying there neil like when uh, when rossi and zarko uh, touch rossi immediately cuts the corner and has and it, well whether or not he accelerates or not but he's able to hold much higher speed than he would through the track and we see him pick up got to be at least 50 bike lengths on Marquez in front he doesn't gain a position he doesn't lose a position but he gains a lot of track position and I think uh, that was the key factor for race control when they were making their decision when I was talking to Mike Webb about it he said that uh, you know it's it's quite clear that it this is a racing incident it's quite clear that Rossi isn't intentionally cutting the corner to try and gain an advantage and that's why it's a case of how much time did he actually gain from it and then we'll add that to his race time so that it's fair for the rest of the field is the thinking behind it as far as race control is concerned and they they waited until they were able to get the information from, from timekeeping timekeeping said it was three tenths of a second he gained so he gets a three tenths of a second penalty it puts him back to where they feel he should have been and what was actually interesting from Webb was that the same thing happened with Lorenzo later in the race. Lorenzo let off the gas and came back towards Jack Miller. And uh, it was when Ianone passed him. That's oh, right, Ianone. And uh, then uh, didn't get a penalty. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts on it. And I think it's one of those situations where neither rider is in the wrong. If race control don't give a penalty or do give a penalty, I'd also find it hard to fault them. It's almost wrong to call it a penalty because it's not so much a penalty. It's just, you know, a little bit, it's that little bit of time added on. It's a corrected race time rather than a, uh, than a penalty. You know, a penalty would have been sort of 10 seconds or whatever. Um, but yeah, he, you know, Rossi cut the track. There are other places. So for example, at Aston, um, uh, the, the chicane at the back end of the back straight, you can cut straight across there and, and gain sort of, you know, two seconds on someone. Um, uh, if it had cut across there and, and done that ass and that you know that that can make a really big difference but uh yeah it, it, it's almost nitpicking to to be correcting times with three tenths of a second but uh it could have made a difference in the end it made absolutely no difference yeah and i think that's probably one of the key factors after the race but for me i think it's fair to say that sometimes you do need to put these penalties in or these corrections in but it is a very insignificant one for the most part and in this case luckily enough it hasn't affected the race results but uh, just uh, whenever you look at some of the other results we've seen in the past like I asked Mike Webb about where did where did the, the thinking come behind giving a penalty like this and Webb said that one of the key reasons was they really hated to see penalties that totally affect a race one of them being ironically enough Giannis Folger Zarko's teammate at uh, Mizano in a Moto2 race a couple of years ago where he was given a penalty and then it was a three-place grid penalty the only problem was it took so long for race direction to make the decision that suddenly he goes from being in a five-bike group or a six-bike group to being in a two-bike group 
and then a three place grid penalty or three place penalty meant he basically had to just wait for the group that was multiple seconds behind them his race is completely ruined so race control tried to find something that's a little bit fairer for everyone and this was ultimately the solution they found yeah absolutely yeah i think it's a, i think i think it was a fair penalty well a fair judgment on race directions part um, I think we should also mention that we're speaking about Johan Zarco making a move on Valentino Rossi as if it's just a normal thing. That in itself is quite remarkable and is testament to just how sensational the, the Frenchman has been riding. Um, we've spoken to many people over, uh, you know, in the paddock um, over the race weekend asking about Sparkle, whether he is surprised. And I think he's very much taken everyone aback, just how quick he has been. Um, and yeah, once again, here in Coda, I mean, he was fifth in, um, in, in Argentina. Um, again, here he was, I think, seven seconds behind the race winner after 21 laps and probably the most demanding, um, physically demanding track on the, the MotoGP calendar. Um, you know, Zarco's just been absolutely sensational so far. And, um, you know, I think, well, maybe not quite the ride of the day. Sorry, pardon me. Maybe not quite the, the ride of the day, but I would certainly put him right up there among the, the, the kind of the best showings we saw in Texas. Yeah, and certainly one of the riders at the opening three races, I think, as you said, Neil, no one really expected this from Zarco. I think when you look at his career as a whole, he's always seemed like one of those guys that needs to feel his way into a class, but uh, definitely, you know, a double Moto2 champion, so not one to be underestimated, but uh, he's definitely surprised pretty much everyone. And when you look at, uh, you know, the standings, he's seventh in the championship. He's you know, 10 points ahead of Lorenzo at the minute. And, uh, you know, it's a big name to have behind you at this stage of the season, regardless of what's going on with Lorenzo. David, like, when you look at Zarco, what's the what's the big surprise for you? What do you think is the big factor that's given him this kind of performance? The big surprise is the fact that he looks like he's like this is his third year in the in the championship and not the first uh, not his first year. Uh, Sam Lowe's had an interesting comment um, on I think Friday because um, uh, he was talking to he, he was he was talking to his brother Alex who was also here and Alex was saying basically that uh, Sam Lowe's is still riding the MotoGP bike like a Moto2 bike which is he's trying to tuck in coming on the exit of a corner he's trying to tuck in and sort of keep follow the bike up sort of thing whereas uh, uh, what MotoGP riders do and Danny Pedrosa is the is the absolute perfect example of this is you stay leaning off the bike and you sort of lever the bike uh, lever the bike up upright with your body uh, accelerate and then once it's accelerating you get but you climb back on the bike um Azarco seems to be doing that already he's doing all of these things which you are uh, which you expect to take a, a a while to learn and he's doing them naturally david we've seen in the past like we've talked about it on the show about how moto 2 for a lot of riders it can be a case of just using the time in that class to learn subtle things maybe like just where to put your weight on a bike and things like that. And we, we take it for granted when we see the likes of Vinales come through that uh, really you can learn those lessons quite quickly in Moto2, whereas in you know the 250 era, we always looked at it that you needed a couple of years to really learn to get the most from a 250, two, three seasons. But uh, maybe with Sarko, we're seeing that uh, while you can get all those lessons quite quickly, to learn the full extent of them, maybe that uh, longer period in the classic Zarco was in it for best part of five years. Maybe we're seeing for the first time that uh, Moto Two can be quite a good uh, category for learning. Yeah, but I mean, personally, I think 
Zarko's a bit of a poor example of everything because he's such a unique uh, character, a unique personality. He has a unique ap- approach to everything. Um, he's an, an incredibly intellectual. Well, the most interesting thing is he's incredibly intellectual, and at the same time, he's uh, he knows exactly when to switch the brain off and get on with the riding. He said something along those lines. The same, I can't remember exactly what, what what the quote was, but he said, you know, um, I think when I asked him about the championship, oh, I'm not going to think about that. Uh, you, you, it's a distraction. You switch that off. You just get on a ride and don't uh, and don't think about it because thinking about it is a waste of energy. It's clear that you can learn a lot in uh, in Moto Two given the opportunity. Um, I'm not sure whether uh, Zarco learned in Moto Two or just learned from being a very unique personality. Yeah, I spoke to him in Argentina, and I was asking him about Qatar and specifically how he managed to remain calm at the start of the well you know the obviously that race was delayed by 40 45 minutes how he managed to stay calm on the grid before that and he was basically saying that um you know as a as a reigning world champion in moto 2 in 2016 he felt pressure constantly he felt that he had to deliver as the reigning champion he thought that all eyes were on him and he was always expected to be on top and anytime he wasn't there was pressure there and he said coming into moto gp was like a breath of fresh air because that isn't really there. No one expects him to do much. No one really expects him to be racing in the top six, maybe the top ten, but you know, not that far up. Um, and he said it's it's kind of been like a, a breath of fresh air. He's been able to to just do things as he pleases. And he said also that he, he just genuinely quite surprised himself with uh, with what happened in Qatar. And he said, you know, he admitted that okay, maybe I, I came into the season thinking, yeah, maybe occasional, you know, top tens are, are possible. And now he said after that race, he thought, well, you know what, why isn't the top six possible? And, you know, after the race today, he was talking about, you know, scoring podiums sometime in the future. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's almost as if Zarco, um, I remember, you know, listening to a few people that were involved in MotoGP, you know, way back in like 2003, whenever Dajiro Kado died and, you know, Sete Gibernoi came and, you know, came in and took that kind of factory Honda um, seat in the Grissini squad um, and won that you know, incredible tense race and welcome. And some people said that, you know, that day Sete almost realized, you know, oh, I, I didn't realize I had this inside me. And he was able to, you know, take that going forward. And, you know, it's almost as if, obviously we're talking about a double world champion here who's had a, you know, sensational couple of years in Moto2. But it's almost as if Zarco has taken those first few races and thought, you know what, I actually, these guys aren't all that, you know, I can run with them. They're nothing that special. And um, it's quite remarkable to see. The immediate comparison is Brad Binder at uh, Jerez last year, where uh, you know he, he hadn't won a race, finds himself at the back of the grid, works his works his way through the field, finds all of a sudden, oh right, okay, I'm catching the leaders. Oh, I'm with the leaders. Oh, I can beat the leaders, and goes on to win. And that sort of uh, it changes the mindset in a rider, changes uh, changes rider's uh, idea. Uh, and I think you see that. Uh, uh, you're probably seeing it with Franco Morbidelli in Moto Two. Uh, uh, I think we, we saw it today with, uh, with Romano Fanati in Moto Three. Just that um, uh, recognition, that internal recognition from a rider that okay, I'm I'm better than I thought, uh, and it changes a different approach. Yeah, I've always said that the most important six inches on any race track are the ones which between your ears and uh, in Moto2 today David we saw with Franco Morbidelli 
again today just uh, how important that momentum is, David. And uh, you know, Moto Two hasn't been uh, hasn't been a class that's gotten people excited in a long time. But Franco Morbidelli is definitely a guy that's getting people excited. Yeah, I mean, definitely. The, it, again, it was uh, it wasn't an exciting race uh, in any way. It was it was uh, an intellectual exercise again. Um, but what was most impressive was the way that Morbidelli managed uh, managed the race. He it took a few laps to actually sort of you know seize control of the uh, seize control of the race, get ahead of his teammate, dispose of Tom Lutey, and then he was following Tom Lutey. Uh, I talked to Tom Lutey after the Moto Two press conference, and Lutey was saying sort of you know uh, he would sort of like creep closer, and every time he got a little bit closer, Morbidelli just seemed to be able to up the pace, put half a second into him. Um, and there was nothing Luti uh, could do about it. So I think uh, Morbidelli is. I mean, there's still 15 races to go. This is a very, very long time to be uh, to be predicting championship. But he's so impressive and he's so controlling. Uh, 75 points from three races. It's it, it, it's just really it's really impressive to watch. And Neil, you mentioned Daijiro Cado there a minute ago, and this is the first time since Cado that we've seen a guy win those opening three races in the intermediate class. But we went down to talk to Michael Bartolomei, the Mark VDS team boss, on uh, Saturday just to uh, talk about Franco, talk about the the team. And you'll have that interview up on Crash.net in the next few days. And uh, really, it was interesting just to hear uh, Bartolomei just talk about how much he clearly respect, respects Franco for one thing, but also just about uh, how they have to work with Franco. He's such a laid back character, but once he actually clicks down the visor, he's just like any other world class racer. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, someone asked Franco after the race today what the big change was from the end of 2016 to the start of 2017. And he said it's just sort of familiarization with the team, knowing how everyone works inside. Um, you know, I think he's working with Pete Benson, um, you know, his second year with Pete, who obviously worked with, you know, Scott Redden in the past and I think won a world MotoGP World Championship with Nicky Hayden back in 2006. Um, and yeah, he's, he's definitely like a very, very relaxed guy, but he's just, uh, he's kind of surfing that way of confidence. Um, Michael Bartolomei was speaking about one or two little things that they've done with uh with that calyx he said you know it's been a few years since they've really thought about the aerodynamics of the bike and he thought that um that looking at the, the top speed charts most of the race in 2016 they noticed that they were losing a little bit of time so i think michael you know set aside some budget to to go to a wind tunnel and work on rider position and you know just make very slight adjustments with the the kind of the aerodynamics of the of that calyx frame he was saying last year it was almost the bike was too wide and there was too much to be gained in the slipstream if you were sat behind them on a straight. So they've kind of gone about making the, the, the sort of the outline of the bike uh, a little narrower. Um, so, so, you know, little things like this always make a, a huge difference in a control class like Moto2. Um, so, yeah, so Franco, I think, is, um, yeah, definitely looks like the pick of the bunch. Um, and at the moment, to be honest, Tom Ludy's probably the only guy I can see making a real fist of it in the championship. You know, Alex Marquez, He's a guy that could potentially go in a bit of a role after winning his first race. Um, he's been quite impressive this year. Um, he seems to definitely have matured quite a bit. Um, but in terms of just guys that you can see piecing a full championship together, I think it's um, I think it's going to be between Franco and Tom. Yeah, and I think uh, you're perfectly right about that. I think when you look at Ludi's the guy with the experience. Marquez has flashed, but until he actually does it, he hasn't done it. 
and uh, you know he might be a Moto Three world champion, but in Moto Two he hasn't shown that he's able to really get those results, get the consistent podiums, and his teammates being able to do it. And David, moving on, winners and losers for this weekend. Franco's clearly one of the big winners. Yeah, I mean, to me, he's the big winner of this weekend because um, uh, we had uh, three... Uh, well, coming into this weekend, we the winners for each race have been the same. Um, and uh, coming out of this weekend, there's only one guy still standing. Uh, Morbid Eddie wins three on the trot. Um, uh, and not just... Uh, winning, but also the way he did it, there was never really any question that, Ma- that Morbidelli was was going to win this. Uh, we saw sort of outstanding performances elsewhere. Marquez wins. Uh, there was a good Moto Three race, but for me, I think Franco Morbidelli is the big winner of this weekend. And Big Neil, who's your big winner? Uh, my big winner would be the winner of the Moto Three race, Romano Fanati, just for just for his approach in the second, uh, well, in the restarted Moto Three race. Um, he didn't look like he was going to challenge in any way for the race win um, before the red flag came out. So there was definitely an element of luck in his uh, in his ride to glory. Um, but from the restart, just um, I think basically from the second corner onwards, you could just see his body language is so aggressive. Uh, Aaron Kinnett was the the pole sitter, was the pre-race favourite, had dominated free practice, you know, to such an extent that it was almost as if, you know, you were just waiting for him to to rack up his first race win. And, uh, you know, Fanana attacked him, attacked him again, just made a bit of a nuisance of himself, pushed him into a mistake. And, um, you know, sure, Fanati uh, has a good record at this track. He won here last year. In fact, it was his last race win. was uh, was this weekend last year. But, um, yeah, I think uh, considering everything that Romano's been through, um, considering the first two races didn't quite go to plan and Argentina, I think, was, was quite a disappointment. We heard some reports of the toys coming out of the pram in the garage after that race and you know you're starting to think has he really learned anything um from his time away in the on the sidelines um but to come back and win quite emphatically here um you know in a, in a quality field with you know guys that guys like uh, jorge martin Juan Mir that have been sensational in the first few races um yeah it, it, it bodes well and um you know as i tipped him for the world championship before the, the season started i'm very very hopeful that it continues good uh good call on Fanati being the big winner and uh for me i'd love to go with marquez as the big winner but when you're expected to come and win you can't be the big winner but uh valentino rossi comes out of here leading the championship Solid in each of the opening three races, three podiums, only man in the class with three podiums. And uh, we've seen time and time again with Rossi in the last few years, he doesn't have the pace, ultimate outright pace of a Marquez or a Vinales. He can still win a few races each year and it's not going to be a surprise if he wins three or four this year. But the key thing for Rossi is just to avoid those big mistakes. We saw Vinales have a big mistake here. We saw Marquez have it last time out in Argentina. But Rossi just consistently being able to grind out those podiums and uh, points make prizes and that's why he's up at the front. Well, 2015 was a perfect example of that where he only won two races and uh, nearly ended up winning the championship. So he knows he knows the ropes, he knows the score. Uh, he's definitely going to be uh, a real threat. And like you say, he's not going to win. He's not going to win seven races. He might only win two, three races. He won four races in 2015. Was less than uh, less than uh, Lorenzo uh, less than Marquez and still uh, nearly ended up winning winning the championship the the point was he was on the he was on the podium everywhere and he he didn't like you said 
didn't lose big points uh, anywhere, which which everyone else did. So, uh, yeah, like I say, he knows the score. So if there's winners, there's got to be losers. And uh, do you know what? It's tough to call the man that came here as the championship leader 50 points from 50. But uh, Mavericks crash today definitely puts him in that uh, category just because of how much... It, he had clearly put into wanting to win this race and how much pressure he'd, he, he'd really circled. This race has been one of those that he wanted to really point the finger and say, you know, this is where I'm strong. It's on Marquez's territory. And I think uh, for me, the big loser is Vinales. Yeah, I would disagree necessarily because there's a bit of a question mark as to why he crashed. But, uh, but yeah, I would say... Yeah, Maverick. Um, Maverick definitely comes away from here with his uh, his head hung low. Uh, I would. I'm going to suggest um, Mr. Aaron Kinnett as the uh, as the big loser of the day. Um, we kind of mentioned a little bit about him in uh, in the Moto3 roundup. Um, but yeah, Kinnett was you know regularly one second, eight tenths of a second quicker than anyone else throughout free practice. He was just fantastic in qualifying. Um, he was quite impressive in the in the race up until Fanati started badgering him, and um, you know he just needed to keep a cool head, and he kind of failed to do that. Um, you have to say that race really was there for the for the taking. Um, would he have won the race had the red flag not come out a couple of laps into the, the you know the first start of that Moto Three race? Probably because he looked like he had just gapped a little bit uh, uh, one mirror behind him, but um, but yeah, he didn't quite manage to keep his head. And, you know, I think uh, if you spoke to anyone on Sunday morning, that was as, uh, as, as sure a, a race win um, as there is likely to be this year. And Aaron still quite uh, didn't manage to wrap it up. So that's a, a shame for him. Definitely, you know, talented kid. I think he'd be there fighting for race wins at quite a lot of races this year. But, um, but yeah, his inexperience definitely showed there today. Yeah, and I have to say, like, just watching the fight between Fanati and Canada at the front, hard not to think back to a race we had here in America a few years ago with Rossi and uh, Stoner at Laguna Seca, just where, you know, Rossi knew that Stoner had more speed than him, so any time that he got an opportunity to get through, he was making a move, regardless of how much time it cost them, and Fanati was the exact same today, proper terrier race, and, and just uh, really any time the door was opened, he was just straight through it, and that really is what uh, had to have played into Canet's crash. But Dave, what about you? Who was your big loser of the weekend? Well, I mean, uh, Vinales, see both of your points, Vinales loses a, an opportunity to get a big lead in the championship. Uh, Canet loses a chance to win a race, which was, and to a certain extent, it was just bad luck because he was totally controlling the first race until Toba crashed, uh, which caused the red flag. Um uh, but again, he only lost the race win. Uh, to me, the big loser of this weekend is Danny Kent because it looks like Danny Kent has more or less thrown away his Grand Prix career by walking away from the uh, from the Kiefer Moto2 team. Well, reasons which are just almost impossible to understand. The He is very unhappy with the team. He's very unhappy with the bike. He says he can't be competitive, all the rest of it. But uh, his teammate, Domi Egeta, ended up fifth, sixth. He's been uh, pretty quick. And the thing is, if you have a bike which is a little bit less competitive, what you do is you just ride ride a little bit harder and beat everyone else on the same bike to try to, to try to show it. But this is the, s the second time that um, 
Uh, he has been he's disappointed in Moto2 uh, last year uh, Stefan Kiefer tried to put, did everything possible to uh, give him a, give him an opportunity they switched chassis uh, they got rid of his uh, uh, of his crew chief Peter Baum who he uh, who he won a world championship with and yet he had all of these things given to him and yet he decides to step away and I, th- and I really fear for Danny Kent who really is I mean Peter Baum always told me he was the most talented rider that he Work for and Peter Bomb has has won world championships with uh, with other riders. I think yeah, Crutchlow uh, with uh, Stefan Bradl. Uh, the you know these are these are real extremely talented riders. Um, Peter Bomb says he's he's more talented than them, but that may be his downfall. He, he's relying on his talent and talent um, uh, talent will get you into a world championship, but that's it. Uh, from there on, it's all hard work, dedication, concentration, and uh, just focusing on. on on results so for me the biggest loser this weekend is is Danny Kent because of all the things he's thrown away yeah definitely a big disappointment to to see that happen as well Dave because the chances have been there and you know he he got the Calix chassis last year that he wanted when he moved back to Moto2 he got the change to the suitor that he wanted for this year and it's just uh, disappointing to see the man that ended that uh, you know 35 year streak of Britain not winning a world championship is out of the world championship as it stands now and you know we have to wait and see you know maybe to be able to line something up for him for the rest of the season but it's uh, definitely a big storyline as we as we leave Coda just to have seen something like that happen yeah and just puzzling as to why he would do it so soon in the year um yeah, you know, David obviously mentioned Agatha's performance this weekend, which was which was good. Um, I think it's safe to assume that the the sort of chassis isn't as good as the Cadillac chassis, nor is it as good as the KTM chassis. But Agatha showed that it's still quite competitive. Um, we've seen in certain preseason tests that it's definitely a bike that's capable of finishing in the top six. Um, but you know, to to compete aboard something that maybe isn't quite as good as you said David you have to go out there and want to prove that you're the best rider on that chassis and yeah kind of spoke you know Danny's a really nice kid really nice guy but you know spoke to him at one point over the weekend and you could just tell that that sort of desire to scrap and fight wasn't there and he had almost resigned himself to he had almost written 2017 off and we're at the third race of the year and you know um, I think as a professional athlete you have to be prepared to deal with these kind of things and you know Danny doesn't seem to be in the in the mental space where you can do those you know where you can accept those challenges Um, you know for him it was just almost as if he wasn't going to be on the best bike then there's no point in, in taking part um, and as you alluded uh, to it earlier, David, I mean, it's, it's it's difficult to see where Danny can go from here because, um, yeah, yeah, I know maybe this, the, the Kiefer Racing team isn't the the best bike in the grid, the best team in the grid, um, but it's, it's difficult to foresee Danny finding a more competitive option than that, especially after walking away midway through a race weekend. Yeah, I mean, the golden rule is... the. the uh, the golden rule in racing is always first you beat your teammate second 
uh, you beat everyone else on the same bike and then third you try and beat everyone else on the grid those are the challenges which you which you have to take you have to take them step at a time if you look i mean for example ktm in uh, in MotoGP, uh paul Spargaro, bradley smith both know uh, they're not going to be winning the world championship this year they both know they won't they won't win a race this year or get on a podium or even you know just uh, getting, uh, getting points right now is the challenge and yet they are focused on small challenges the challenge of first of all beat your teammate secondly try and beat the people ahead of you try and get into the points these small steps and uh, uh picking your fights and i think that's where uh, danny kent went wrong okay well that brings us to the end of the show as we said it's a bit of a quick hit from uh coda because well uh, the us was made famous for the doomsday clock being a minute to midnight we're getting pretty close to midnight now and there's deadlines being met so uh david thanks for joining us thank you neil thanks for joining us thank you steve Okay, well, thanks for joining us, guys. And uh, so you can follow us on uh, social media with at paddockpasspod on Twitter, facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. And you can also follow us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast there. And if you leave a review, it uh, definitely helps everyone find the podcasts in the future. And it puts such a massive smile on David Emmett's face. Uh, you really have to do it. To be honest, Neil, this weekend... No, David actually hasn't smiled once. Um, but uh, thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you all soon. So get it done. Get it done. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a hard thing to actually get it all accomplished after I took all your money today, Dave. <laughs> but uh, welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I'm Stephen English, and I'm joined today by...